everyone, this episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm, and why not get something sent to you in the mail? Feel like uh, you're getting something, you know? Hey, get something in the mail during self-isolation. Yeah, that's it. Bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm. Um, yeah, yeah, no, this is definitely to put a timestamp on when this show's coming out. It is March 20-somethingth. I've kind of quit, I don't know, caring about the time. Um, it's just kind of a countdown till late April when the kids go back to school, and I can, I don't know, I'm, I'm honestly just waiting for free tests, or not tests, just, I'm waiting for tests to be available in my area so I can go back to work, because I was sick, now I'm not sick, and I can't go back to work until I test clean. Uh, yeah, so, hey, I'm gonna be doing this for a while, I'm bored, uh, none of my podcasts are podcasting because of the fact that everyone's sick, doesn't want to be around each other. This is the great thing about being a one-man show. I just find stuff, I put it up, and I put it out. I'm probably going to be doing some Skype interviews with some folks to keep this train moving. I want you to have entertainment. That's what I've always wanted. I've wanted to, you know, people who can't read. I want them to be able to read and listen to uh, some classic literature. People who have learning disabilities and you know, don't like to read. I want them to know who the classics are, my brother Joe. And this is this is kind of why I do this. And also, it's nice to have stuff to listen to all day long. I listen to podcasts all day long when I'm not making podcasts or working on stuff that I can't listen to podcasts. And I just want to say, support small podcasts. You know, there's all those, like, ear howls out there and you're your big media types and stuff like that support small podcasts help keep us going we keep you going we fill your day with all kinds of stuff help keep us going especially in a time like this where some of us are unemployed if you want to do that that'd be great there's more important stuff to give money and time to than podcasters right now i'll be super super duper serious about that so do what you can and remember we are available on facebook um you know, PGTTCM Black Clock Audio Tales, Arthur Mackin's Three Imposters. This is one that I've done bits and pieces of when it was uh, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos 24-7. But now, hey, with this, with Black Clock Audio Tales, I finally get to cover it. If you want to go back through the catalogs and listen to old stuff, I've got various people recording this back when I was trying to do that. But hey, here we go. Three Imposters. We're available on Instagram. And also anywhere that you're going to find podcasts and Black Clock Audio Tales Special Edition. Part 5 of Novel of the Black Seal. Several years elapsed before I was enabled to add to the contents of the drawer. And the second find was, in reality, not a valuable one, for it was a mere repetition of the first, with only the variation of another and distant locality. Yet I gained something... For in the second case, as in the first, the tragedy took place in a desolate and lonely country, and so far my theory seemed justified. But the third piece was to me far more decisive. Again, among outland hills, far even from a main road of traffic, an old man was found done to death, 
and the instrument of execution was left beside him here indeed there were rumor and conjecture for the deadly tool was a primitive stone axe bound by gut to the wooden handle and surmises the most extravagant and improbable were indulged in yet as i thought with a kind of glee the wildest conjectures went far astray and i took the pains to enter into correspondence with the local doctor who was called at the inquest he a man of some acuteness was dumbfounded it will not do to speak of these things in country places he wrote to me but frankly there is some hideous mystery here i have obtained possession of the stone axe and have been curious as to test its powers i took it into the back yard of my house one sunday afternoon when my family and the servants were all out and there sheltered by the poplar hedges i made my experiments i found the thing utterly unmanageable whether there is some peculiar balance some nice adjustment of weights which require incessant practice or whether an effectual blow can be struck only by a certain trick of the muscles i do not know but i can assure you that i went into the house with but a sorry opinion of my athletic capacities i was like an inexperienced man trying putting the hammer the force exerted seemed to return on oneself and i found myself hurled backwards with violence while the axe fell harmless to the ground on another occasion i tried the experiment with a clever woodman of the place but this man who had handled his axe for forty years could do nothing with the stone implement and missed every stroke most ludicrously in short if it were not so supremely absurd i should say that for four thousand years no one on earth could have struck an effective blow with the tool that undoubtedly was used to murder the old man this as may be imagined was to me rare news and afterwards when i heard the whole story and learned that the unfortunate old man had babbled tales of what might be seen at night on a certain wild hillside hinting at unheard-of wonders and that he had been found cold one morning on the very hill in question my exultation was extreme for i felt i was leaving conjecture far behind me but the next step was of still greater importance i had possessed for many years an extraordinary stone seal a piece of dull black stone two inches long from the handle to the stamp and the stamping end a rough hexagon an inch and a quarter in diameter altogether it presented the appearance of an enlarged tobacco stopper of an old-fashioned make it had been sent to me by an agent of the east who informed me that it had been found near the site of the ancient babylon but the characters engraved on the seal were to me an intolerable puzzle somewhat of the cuneiform pattern there were yet striking differences which i detected at the first glance and all efforts to read the inscription on the hypothesis that the rules for deciphering the arrow-headed writing would apply proved futile a riddle such as this stung my pride and at odd moments i would take the black seal out of the cabinet 
and scrutinize it with so much idle perseverance that every letter was familiar to my mind, and I could have drawn the inscription from memory without the slightest error. Judge then of my surprise when I one day received from a correspondent in the west of England a letter and an enclosure that positively left me thunderstruck. I saw carefully traced on the large piece of paper the very characters of the black seal, without alteration of any kind, and above the inscription my friend had written, Inscription found on a limestone rock on the grey hills, Monmouthshire, done in some red earth, and quite recent. I turned to the letter. My friend wrote, I send you the enclosed inscription with all due reserve. A shepherd who passed by the stone a week ago swears that there was then no mark of any kind. The characters, as I have noted, are formed by drawing some red earth over the stone and are of an average height of one inch. They look to me like a kind of cuneiform character, a good deal altered, but this, of course, is impossible. It may be either a hoax or, more probably, some scribble of the gypsies, who are plentiful enough in this wild country. They have, as you are aware, many hieroglyphics which they use in communicating with one another. I happened to visit the stone in question two days ago in connection with a rather painful incident which has occurred here. As it may be supposed, I wrote immediately to my friend, thanking him for the copy of the inscription and asking him in a casual manner the history of the incident he mentioned. To be brief, I heard that a woman named Craddock who had lost her husband a day before, had set out to communicate the sad news to a cousin who lived some five miles away. She took a shortcut, which led by the Grey Hills. Mrs. Craddock, who was then quite a young woman, never arrived at her relative's house. Late that night, a farmer, who had lost a couple of sheep supposed to have wandered from the flock, was walking over the gray hills with a lantern and his dog. His attention was attracted by a noise which he described as a kind of wailing, mournful and pitiable to hear, and guided by the sound he found the unfortunate Mrs. Craddock crouched on the ground by the limestone rock, swaying her body to and fro, and lamenting and crying in so heart-rending a manner that the farmer was, as he says, at first obliged to stop his ears, or he would have run away. The woman allowed herself to be taken home, and a neighbor came to see to her necessities. All the night she never ceased her crying, mixing her lament with words of some unintelligible jargon. And when the doctor arrived, he pronounced her insane. She lay on her bed for a week, now wailing, as people said, like one lost and damned for eternity, and now sunk in a heavy coma. It was thought that grief at the loss of her husband had unsettled her mind, and the medical man did not at one time expect her to live. I need not say that I was deeply interested in this story, and I made my friend write to me at intervals with all the particulars of the case. I heard then that in the course of six weeks the woman gradually recovered the use of her faculties, and some months later she gave birth to a son, Christian Gervais, 
who unhappily proved to be of weak intellect. Such were the facts known to the village. But to me, while I whitened at the suggested thought of the hideous enormities that had doubtless been committed, all this was nothing short of conviction, and I incautiously hazarded a hint of something like the truth to some scientific friends. The moment the words had left my lips, I bitterly regretted having spoken and thus given away the great secret of my life. But with a good deal of relief mixed with indignation, I found my fears altogether misplaced, for my friends ridiculed me to my face, and I was regarded as a madman. And beneath a natural anger, I chuckled to myself, feeling as secure amidst these blockheads as if I had confided what I knew to the desert sands. But now, knowing so much, I resolved I would know all and I concentrated my efforts on the task of deciphering the inscription on the black seal. For many years I made this puzzle the sole object of my leisure moments, for the greater portion of my time was, of course, devoted to other duties, and it was only now and then that I could snatch a week of clear research. If I were to tell the full history of this curious investigation, this statement would be wearisome to the extreme, for it would contain simply the account of long and tedious failure. But what I knew already of ancient scripts, I was well equipped for the chase, as I always termed it to myself. I had correspondence amongst all the scientific men in Europe, and indeed in the world, and I could not believe that in these days any character, however ancient and however perplexed, could long resist the searchlight I should bring to bear upon it. Yet, in point of fact, it was fully fourteen years before I succeeded. With every year my professional duties increased, and my leisure became smaller. This no doubt retarded me a good deal, and yet, when I look back on those years, I am astonished at the vast scope of my investigation of the Black Seal. I made my bureau a center, and from all the world and from all the ages I gathered transcripts of ancient writing. Nothing, I resolved, should pass me unawares, and the faintest hint should be welcomed and followed up. But as one covert after another was tried and proved empty of result, I began in the course of years to despair and to wonder whether the black seal were the sole relic of some race that had vanished from the world and left no other trace of its existence, had perished, in fine, as Atlantis is said to have done, in some great cataclysm, its secrets perhaps drowned beneath the ocean or molded into the hearts of the hills. The thought chilled my warmth a little, and though I still persevered, it was no longer with the same certainty of faith. A chance came to the rescue. I was staying in a considerable town in the north of England, and took the opportunity of going over the very creditable museum that had for some time been established in the place. The curator was one of my correspondents, and as we were looking through one of the mineral cases, my attention was struck by a specimen, a piece of black stone some four inches square, the appearance of which reminded me in a measure of the black seal. 
i took it up carelessly and was turning it over in my hand when i saw to my astonishment that the underside was inscribed i said quietly enough to my friend the curator that the specimen interested me and that i should be much obliged if he would allow me to take it with me to my hotel for a couple of days he of course made no objection and i hurried to my rooms and found that my first glance had not deceived me there were two inscriptions one in the regular cuneiform character another in the character of the black seal and i realized that my task was accomplished i made an exact copy of the two inscriptions and when i got to my london study and had the seal before me i was able seriously to grapple with the great problem the interpreting inscription on the museum specimen though in itself curious enough did not bear on my quest but the transliteration made me master of the secret of the black seal conjecture of course had to enter into my calculations there was here and there uncertainty about a particular ideograph and one sign recurring again and again on the seal baffled me for many successive nights but at last the secret stood open before me in plain english and i read the key of the awful transmutation of the hills the last word was hardly written when with fingers all trembling and unsteady i tore the scrap of paper into the minutest fragments and saw them flame and blacken in the red hollow of the fire and then i crushed the gray films that remained into finest powder never since then have i written those words never will i write the phrases which tell how man can be reduced to the slime from which he came and be forced to put on the flesh of the reptile and the snake there was now but one thing remaining i knew but i desired to see and i was after some time able to take a house in the neighborhood of the gray hills and not far from the cottage where mrs craddock and her son gervaise resided i need not go into a full and detailed account of the apparently inexplicable events which have occurred here where i am writing this i knew that i should find in gervaise craddock something of the blood of the little people i found later that he had more than once encountered his kinsmen in lonely places in that lonely land when i was summoned one day to the garden and found him in a seizure speaking or hissing the ghastly jargon of the black seal i am afraid that exultation prevailed over pity i heard bursting from his lips the secrets of the underworld and the word of dread ishakshar signification of which i must be excused from giving but there is one incident i cannot pass over unnoticed in the waste hollow of the night i awoke at the sound of those hissing syllables i knew so well and on going to the wretched boy's room i found him convulsed and foaming at the mouth struggling on the bed as if he strove to escape the grasp of writhing demons i took him down to my room and lit the lamp while he lay twisting on the floor calling on the power within his flesh to leave him i saw his body swell and become distended as a bladder 
while the face blackened before my eyes and then at the crisis i did what was necessary according to the directions on the seal and putting all scruple on one side i became a man of science observant of what was passing yet the sight i had to witness was horrible almost beyond the power of human conception and the most fearful fantasy something pushed out from the body there on the floor and stretched forth a slimy wavering tentacle across the room grasped the bust upon the cupboard and laid it down on my desk when it was over and i was left to walk up and down all the rest of the night white and shuddering with sweat pouring from my flesh i vainly tried to reason within myself i said truly enough that i had seen nothing really supernatural that a snail pushing out his horns and drawing them in was but an instance on a smaller scale of what i had witnessed and yet horror broke through all such reasonings and left me shattered and loathing myself for the share i had taken in the night's work there is little more to be said i am going now to the final trial and encounter for i have determined that there shall be nothing wanting and i shall meet the little people face to face i shall have the black seal and the knowledge of its secrets to help me and if i unhappily do not return from my journey there is no need to conjure up here a picture of the awfulness of my fate pausing a little at the end of professor gregg's statement miss lally continued her tale in the following words such was the almost incredible story that the professor had left behind him when i had finished reading it it was late at night but the next morning i took morgan with me and we proceeded to search the gray hills for some trace of the lost professor i will not weary you with a description of the savage desolation of that tract of country a tract of utterest loneliness of bare green hills dotted over with gray limestone boulders worn by the ravages of time into fantastic semblances of men and beasts finally after many hours of weary searching we found what i told you the watch and chain and purse and the ring wrapped in a piece of coarse parchment when morgan cut the gut that bound the parcel together and i saw the professor's property i burst into tears but the sight of the dreaded characters of the black seal repeated on the parchment froze me to silent horror and i think i understood for the first time the awful fate that had come upon my late employer i have only to add that professor gregg's lawyer treated my account of what had happened as a fairy tale and refused even to glance at the documents i laid before him it was he who was responsible for the statement that appeared in the public press to the effect that professor gregg had been drowned and that his body must have been swept into the open sea miss lally stopped speaking and looked at mr phillips with a glance of some inquiry he for his part was sunken in a deep reverie of thought and when he looked up and saw the bustle of the evening gathering in the square men and women hurrying to partake of dinner and crowds already besetting the music halls all the hum and press of actual life seemed unreal and visionary a dream in the morning after an awakening 
I thank you, he said at last, for your most interesting story, interesting to me because I feel fully convinced of its exact truth. Sir, said the lady with some energy of indignation, you grieve and offend me. Do you think I should waste my time and yours by concocting fictions on a bench in Leicester Square? Pardon me, Miss Lally, you have a little misunderstood me. Before you began, I knew that whatever you told would be told in good faith, but your experiences have a far higher value than that of bona fides. The most extraordinary circumstances in your account are in perfect harmony with the very latest scientific theories. Professor Lodge would, I am sure, value a communication from you extremely. I was charmed from the first by his daring hypothesis and explanation of the wonders of spiritualism, so-called, but your narrative puts the whole matter out of the range of mere hypothesis. Alas, sir, all this will not help me. You forget, I have lost my brother under the most startling and dreadful circumstances. Again I ask you, did you not see him as you came here? His black whiskers, his spectacles, his timid glance to right and left. Think, do not these particulars recall his face to your memory? I am sorry to say I have never seen any one of the kind, said Phillips, who had forgotten all about the missing brother. But let me ask you a few questions. Did you not notice whether Professor Gregg... Pardon me, sir. I have stayed too long. My employers will be expecting me. I thank you for your sympathy. Goodbye. Before Mr. Phillips had recovered from his amazement at this abrupt departure, Miss Lally had disappeared from his gaze, passing into the crowd that now thronged the approaches to the Empire. He walked home in a pensive frame of mind and drank too much tea. At ten o'clock he had made his third brew and had sketched out the outlines of a little work to be called Protoplasmic Reversion. End of Novel of the Black Seal Incident of the Private Bar Mr. Dyson often meditated at odd moments over the singular tale he had listened to at the Café de la Touraine. In the first place, he cherished a profound conviction that the words of truth were scattered with a too niggardly and sparing hand over the agreeable history of Mr. Smith and the Black Gulf Canyon. And secondly, there was the undeniable fact of the profound agitation of the narrator and his gestures on the pavement, too violent to be simulated. The idea of a man going about London haunted by the fear of meeting a young man with spectacles struck Dyson as supremely ridiculous. He searched his memory for some precedent in romance, but without success. He paid visits at odd times to the little cafe, hoping to find Mr. Wilkins there, and he kept a sharp watch on the great generation of the spectacled men, without much doubt that he would remember the face of the individual whom he had seen dart out of the aerated bread shop. All his peregrinations and researches, however, seemed to lead to nothing of value. 
and dyson needed all his warm conviction of his innate detective powers and his strong scent for mystery to sustain him in his endeavors in fact he had two affairs on hand and every day as he passed through streets crowded or deserted lurked in the obscure districts and watched at corners he was more than surprised to find that the affair of the gold coin persistently avoided him while the ingenious wilkins and the young man with spectacles whom he dreaded seemed to have vanished from the pavements he was pondering these problems one evening in a house of call in the strand and the obstinacy with which the persons he so ardently desired to meet hung back gave the modest tankard before him an additional touch of bitter as it happened he was alone in his compartment and without thinking he uttered aloud the burden of his meditations how bizarre it all is he said a man walking the pavement with the dread of a timid-looking young man with spectacles continually hovering before his eyes and there was some tremendous feeling at work i could swear to that quick as thought before he had finished the sentence a head popped round the barrier and was withdrawn again all while dyson was wondering what this could mean the door of the compartment was swung open and a smooth clean-shaven and smiling gentleman entered you will excuse me sir he said politely for intruding on your thoughts but you made a remark a minute ago i did said dyson i have been puzzling over a foolish matter and i thought aloud as you heard what i said and seemed interested perhaps you may be able to relieve my perplexity indeed i scarcely know it is an odd coincidence one has to be cautious i suppose sir that you would be glad to assist the ends of justice justice replied dyson is a term of such wide meaning that i too feel doubtful about giving an answer but this place is not altogether fit for such a discussion perhaps you would come to my rooms you are very kind my name is burton but i am sorry to say i have not a card with me do you live near here within ten minutes walk mr burton took out his watch and seemed to be making a rapid calculation i have a train to catch he said but after all it is a late one so if you don't mind i think i will come with you i am sure we should have a little talk together we turn up here the theatres were filling as they crossed the strand the street seemed alive with voices and dyson looked fondly about him the glittering lines of gas lamps with here and there the blinding radiance of an electric light the hansoms that flashed to and fro with ringing bells the laden buses and the eager hurrying east and west of the foot passengers made his most enchanting picture and the graceful spire of st mary le strand on the one hand and the last flush of sunset on the other were to him a cause of thanksgiving as the gorse blossom to linnaeus mr burton caught his look of fondness as they crossed the street i see you can find the picturesque in london he said to me this great town is as i see it is to you the study and the love of life yet how few there are that can pierce the veils of apparent monotony and meanness 
i have read in a paper which is said to have the largest circulation in the world a comparison between the aspects of london and paris a comparison which should be positively laureate as the great masterpiece of fatuous stupidity conceive if you can a human being of ordinary intelligence preferring the boulevards to our london streets imagine a man calling for the wholesale destruction of our most charming city in order that the dull uniformity of that whited sepulchre called paris should be reproduced here in london is it not positively incredible my dear sir said dyson regarding burton with a good deal of interest i agree most heartily with your opinions but i really can't share your wonder have you heard how much george eliot received for romola do you know what the circulation of uh, robert elsmere was do you read titbits regularly to me on the contrary it is constant matter both for wonder and thanksgiving that london was not boulevardized twenty years ago i praise that exquisite jagged skyline that stands up against the pale greens and fading blues and flushing clouds of sunset but i wonder even more than i praise as for st mary lestrand its preservation is a miracle nothing more or less a thing of exquisite beauty versus four buses abreast really the conclusion is too obvious didn't you read the letter of the man who proposed that the whole mysterious system the immemorial plan of computing easter should be abolished off-hand because he doesn't like his son having his holidays as early as march twenty-fifth but shall we be going on they had lingered at the corner of a street on the north side of the strand enjoying the contrasts and the glamour of the scene dyson pointed the way with a gesture and they strolled up the comparatively deserted streets slanting a little to the right and thus arrived at dyson's lodging on the verge of bloomsbury mr burton took a comfortable armchair by the open window while dyson lit the candles and produced the whisky and soda and cigarettes they tell me these cigarettes are very good he said but i know nothing about it myself i hold at last that there is only one tobacco and that is shag i suppose i should not tempt you to try a pipeful mr burton smilingly refused the offer and picked out a cigarette from the box when he had smoked it half through he said with some hesitation it is really kind of you to have me here mr dyson the fact is that the interests at issue are far too serious to be discussed in a bar where as you found for yourself there may be listeners voluntary or involuntary on each side i think the remark i heard you make was something about the oddity of an individual going about london in deadly fear of a young man with spectacles yes that was it well would you mind confiding to me the circumstances that gave rise to the reflection not in the least it was like this and he ran over in brief outline the adventure in oxford street dwelling on the violence of mr wilkins's gestures but wholly suppressing the tale told in the cafe he told me he lived in constant terror of meeting this man 
and I left him when I thought he was cool enough to look after himself, said Dyson, ending his narrative. Really, said Mr. Burton, and you actually saw this mysterious person? Yes. And could you describe him? Well, he looked to me a youngish man, pale and nervous. He had small black side whiskers and wore rather large spectacles. But this is simply marvelous. You astonish me, for I must tell you that my interest in the matter is this. I'm not in the least in terror of meeting a dark young man with spectacles, but I shrewdly suspect a person of that description would much rather not meet me. And yet the account you give of the man tallies exactly. A nervous glance to right and left, is it not so? And as you observed, he wears prominent spectacles and has small black whiskers. There cannot be, surely, two people exactly identical. One a cause of terror, and the other, I should imagine, extremely anxious to get out of the way. But have you seen this man since? No, I have not. I have been looking for him pretty keenly, but of course he may have left London and England too for the matter of that. Hardly, I think. Well, Mr. Dyson, it is only fair that I should explain my story now that I've listened to yours. I must tell you then that I am an agent for curiosities and precious things of all kinds. An odd employment, isn't it? Of course, I wasn't brought up to the business. I gradually fell into it. I have always been fond of things queer and rare, and by the time I was twenty I had made a half a dozen collections. It is not generally known how often farm laborers come upon rarities. You would be astonished if I told you what I have seen turned up by the plow. I lived in the country in those days, and I used to buy anything the men on the farms brought me, and I had the queerest set of rubbish as my friends called my collection. But that's how I got the scent of the business, which means everything. And later on it struck me that I might very well turn my knowledge to account and add to my income. Since those early days I have been in most quarters of the world, and some very valuable things have passed through my hands, and I have had to engage in difficult and delicate negotiations. You have possibly heard of the Khan Opal, called in the East the Stone of a Thousand and One Colors? Well, perhaps the conquest of that stone was my greatest achievement. I call it myself the Stone of the Thousand and One Lies, for I assure you that I had to invent a cycle of folklore before the Raja who owned it would consent to sell the thing. I subsidized wandering storytellers who told tales in which the opal played a frightful part. I hired a holy man, a great ascetic, to prophesy against the thing in the language of Eastern symbolism. In short, I frightened the Raja out of his wits. So you see, there is room for diplomacy in the traffic I am engaged in. I have to be ever on my guard, and I have often been sensible that unless I watched every step and weighed every word, my life would not last me much longer. Last April, I became aware of the existence of a highly valuable antique gem. It was in southern Italy and in the possession of persons who were ignorant of its real value. It has always been my experience 
that it is precisely the ignorant who are most difficult to deal with. I have met farmers who were under the impression that a shilling of George I was a find of almost incalculable value, and all the defeats I have sustained have been at the hands of people of this description. Reflecting on these facts, I saw that the acquisition of the gem I have mentioned would be an affair demanding the nicest diplomacy. I might possibly have got it by offering a sum approaching its real value, but I need not point out to you that such a proceeding would be most unbusinesslike. Indeed, I doubt whether it would have been successful, for the cupidity of such persons is aroused by a sum which seems enormous, and the low cunning which serves them in place of intelligence immediately suggests that the object for which such an amount is offered must be worth at least double. Of course, when the matter is of an ordinary curiosity, an old jug, a carved chest, or a queer brass lantern, one does not much care. The cupidity of the owner defeats its object. The collector laughs and goes away, for he is aware that such things are by no means unique. But this gem I fervently desired to possess, and as I did not see my way to giving more than a hundredth part of its value, I was conscious that all my, let us say, imaginative and diplomatic powers would have to be exerted. I am sorry to say that I came to the conclusion that I could not undertake to carry the matter through single-handed, and I determined to confide in my assistant, a young man named William Robbins, whom I judged to be by no means devoid of capacity. My idea was that Robbins should get himself up as a low-class dealer in precious stones. He could patter a little Italian and would go to the town in question and manage to see the gem we were after, possibly by offering some trifling articles of jewelry for sale. But that I left to be decided. Then my work was to begin, but I will not trouble you with a tale told twice over. In due course, then, Robbins went off to Italy with an assortment of uncut stones and a few rings, and some jewelry I bought in Birmingham on purpose for his expedition. A week later I followed him, traveling leisurely, so that I was a fortnight later in arriving at our common destination. There was a decent hotel in town, and on my inquiring of the landlord whether there were many strangers in the place, he told me very few. He had heard there was an Englishman staying in a small tavern, a peddler, he said, who sold beautiful trinkets very cheaply and wanted to buy old rubbish. For five or six days I took life leisurely. I must say I enjoyed myself. It was part of my plan to make the people think I was an enormously rich man, and I knew that such items as the extravagance of my meals and the price of every bottle of wine I drank would not be suffered, as Sancho Panza puts it, to rot in the landlord's breast. At the end of the week I was fortunate enough to make the acquaintance of Signor Mellini, the owner of the gem I coveted at the café, and with his ready hospitality and my geniality 
I was soon established as a friend of the house. On my third or fourth visit, I managed to make the Italians talk about the English peddler, who, they said, spoke a most detestable Italian. But that does not matter, said the Signora Melini, for he has beautiful things which he sells very, very cheap. I hope you may not find he has cheated you, I said, for I must tell you that English people give these fellows a very wide berth. They usually make a great parade out of the cheapness of their goods, which often turn out to be double the price of better articles in the shops. They would not hear of this, and Signora Melini insisted on showing me the three rings and the bracelet she had bought of the peddler. She told me the price she had paid, and after scrutinizing the articles carefully, I had to confess that she had made a bargain. And indeed, Robbins had sold her the things at about fifty percent below market value. I admired the trinkets as I gave them back to the lady, and I hinted that the peddler must be a somewhat foolish specimen of his class. Two days later, as I was taking my vermouth at the café with Signor Melini, he led the conversation back to the peddler and mentioned casually that he had shown the man a little curiosity, for which he had made rather a handsome offer. My dear sir, I said, I hope you will be careful. I told you that the traveling tradesman does not bear a very high reputation in England, and notwithstanding his apparent simplicity, this fellow may turn out to be an errant cheat. May I ask you what is the nature of the curiosity you have shown him? He told me it was a little thing, a pretty little stone with some figures cut on it. People said it was old. I should like to examine it, I replied. As it happens, I have seen a good deal of these gems. We have a fine collection of them in our museum at London. In due course, I was shown the article, and I held the gem I so coveted between my fingers. I looked at it coolly and put it down carelessly on the table. Would you mind telling me, senor, I said, how much my fellow countrymen offered you for this? Well, he said, my wife says the man must be mad. He said he would give me twenty lira for it. I looked at him quietly and took up the gem and pretended to examine it in the light more carefully. I turned it over and over and finally pulled out a magnifying glass from my pocket and seemed to search every line in the cutting with minutest scrutiny. My dear sir, I said at last, I am inclined to agree with Signora Melini. If this gem were genuine, it would be worth some money, but as it happens to be a rather bad forgery, it is not worth twenty centesimi. It was sophisticated, I should imagine, some time in the last century, and by a very unskillful hand. Then we had better get rid of it, said Melini. I never thought it was worth anything myself. Of course, I am sorry for the peddler, but one must let a man know his own trade. I shall tell him we will take the twenty lira. Excuse me, I said. The man wants a lesson. It would be a charity to give him one. Tell him that you will not take anything under eighty lira, and I shall be much surprised if he does not close with you at once. A day or two later I heard that the English peddler had gone away, after debasing the minds of the country people with Birmingham art jewelry, 
for i admit that the gold sleeve links like kidney beans the silver chains made apparently after the pattern of a dog chain and the initial brooches have always been heavy on my conscience i cannot acquit myself of having indirectly contributed to debauch the taste of a simple folk but i hope that the end i had in view may finally outbalance this heavy charge soon afterwards i paid a farewell visit at the Molinis, and the signor informed me with an oily chuckle that the plan i had suggested had been completely successful i congratulated him on his bargain and went away after expressing a wish that heaven may send many such peddlers in his path nothing of interest occurred on my return journey i had arranged that robbins was to meet me at a certain place on a certain day and i went to the appointment full of the coolest confidence the gem had been conquered and i had only to reap the fruits of victory i am sorry to shake that trust in our common human nature which i am sure you possess but i am compelled to tell you that up to the present date i have never set eyes on my man robbins or on the antique gem in his custody i have found out that he actually arrived in london for he was seen three days before my arrival in england by a pawnbroker of my acquaintance consuming his favorite beverage for ale in the tavern where we met tonight since then he has not been heard of i hope you will now pardon my curiosity as to the history and adventures of dark young men with spectacles you will i am sure feel for me in my position the savor of life has disappeared for me it is a bitter thought that i have rescued one of the most perfect and exquisite specimens of antique art from the hands of ignorant and indeed unscrupulous persons only to deliver it to the keeping of a man who is evidently utterly devoid of the very elements of commercial morality my dear sir said dyson you will allow me to compliment you on your style your adventures have interested me exceedingly but forgive me you just now used the word morality would not some persons take exception to your own methods of business i can conceive myself flaws of a moral kind being found in the very original conception you have described to me i can imagine the puritan shrinking in dismay from your scheme pronouncing it unscrupulous nay dishonest mr burton helped himself very frankly to more whisky your scruples entertain me he said perhaps you have not gone very deeply into these questions of ethics i have been compelled to do so myself just as i was forced to master a simple system of bookkeeping without bookkeeping and still more without a system of ethics it is impossible to conduct a business such as mine but i assure you that i am often profoundly saddened as i pass through the crowded streets and watch the world at work by the thought of how few amongst all these hurrying individuals black-hatted well-dressed educated we may presume sufficiently how few amongst them have any reasoned system of morality 
even you have not weighed the question although you study life and affairs and to a certain extent penetrate the veils and mask of the comedy of man even you judge by empty conventions and the false money which is allowed to pass current as sterling coin allow me to play the part of socrates i shall teach you nothing that you do not know i shall merely lay aside the wrappings of prejudice and bad logic and show you the real image which you possess in your soul come then do you allow that happiness is anything certainly said dyson and happiness is desirable or undesirable desirable of course and what shall we call the man who gives happiness is he not a philanthropist i think so and such a person is praiseworthy and the more praiseworthy in the proportion of the persons whom he makes happy by all means so that he who makes a whole nation happy is praiseworthy in the extreme and the action by which he gives happiness is the highest virtue it appears so oh burton said dyson who found something very exquisite in the character of his visitor quite so you find the several conclusions inevitable well apply them to the story i have told you i conferred happiness on myself by obtaining as i thought possession of the gem i conferred happiness on the melinis by getting them eighty lira instead of an object for which they had not the slightest value and i intended to confer happiness on the whole british nation by selling the thing to the british museum to say nothing of the happiness a profit of about nine thousand per cent would have conferred on me i assure you i regard robbins as an interferer with the cosmos and fair order of things but that is nothing you perceive that i am an apostle of the very highest morality you have been forced to yield to argument there certainly seems a great deal in what you advance said dyson i admit that i am a mere amateur of ethics while you as you say have brought the most acute scrutiny to bear on these perplexed and doubtful questions i can well understand your anxiety to meet the fallacious robins and i congratulate myself on the chance which has made us acquainted but you will pardon my seeming inhospitality i see it is half-past eleven and i think you mentioned a train a thousand thanks mr dyson i have just time i see i will look you up some evening if i may good night end of incident of the private bar the decorative imagination in the course of a few weeks dyson became accustomed to the constant incursions of the ingenious mr burton who showed himself ready to drop in at all hours not averse to refreshment and a profound guide in the complicated questions of life his visits at once terrified and delighted dyson who could no longer seat himself at his bureau secure from interruption while he embarked on literary undertakings each one of which was to be a masterpiece 
on the other hand it was a vivid pleasure to be confronted with views so highly original and if here and there mr burton's reasonings seemed tinged with fallacy yet dyson freely yielded to the joy of strangeness and never failed to give his visitor a frank and hearty welcome mr burton's first inquiry was always after the unprincipled robins and he seemed to feel the stings of disappointment when dyson told him that he had failed to meet this outrage on all morality as burton styled him vowing that sooner or later he would take vengeance on such a shameless betrayal of trust one evening they had sat together for some time discussing the possibility of laying down for this present generation and our modern and intensely complicated order of society some rules of social diplomacy such as lord bacon gave to the courtiers of king james i it is a book to make said mr burton but who is there capable of making it i tell you people are longing for such a book it would bring fortune to its publisher bacon's essays are exquisite but they have now no practical application the modern strategist can find but little use in a treatise de re militari written by a florentine in the fifteenth century scarcely more dissimilar are social conditions of bacon's time and our own the rules that he lays down so exquisitely for the courtier and diplomatist of james the first's age will avail us little in the rough-and-tumble struggle of to-day life i am afraid has deteriorated it gives little play for fine strokes such as formerly advanced men in the state except in such businesses as mine where a chance does occur now and then it has all become as i said an affair of rough and tumble men still desire to attain it is true but what is their moyen de parvenir a mere imitation and not a gracious one of the arts of the soap vendor and the proprietor of baking powder when i think of these things my dear dyson i confess that i am tempted to despair of my century you are too pessimistic my dear fellow you set up too high a standard certainly i agree with you that the times are decadent in many ways i admit a general appearance of squalor it needs much philosophy to extract the wonderful and the beautiful from the cromwell road or the nonconformist conscience australian wines of fine burgundy character the novels alike of old women and the new women popular journalism these things indeed make for depression yet we have our advantages before us is unfolded the greatest spectacle the world has ever seen the mystery of the innumerable unending streets the strange adventures that must infallibly arise from so complicated a press of interests nay i will say that he who has stood in the ways of a suburb and has seen them stretch before him all shining void and desolate at noonday has not lived in vain 
such a sight is in reality more wonderful than any perspective of baghdad or grand cairo and yet to set on one side the entertaining history of the gym which you told me surely you must have had many singular adventures in your own career perhaps not so many as you would think a good deal the larger part of my business has been as commonplace as linen drapery but of course things happen now and then it is ten years since i established my agency and i suppose that a house and estate agent who had been in trade for an equal time could tell you some queer stories but i must give you a sample of my experiences some night why not to-night said dyson this evening seems to me admirably adapted for an odd chapter look out into the street you can catch a view of it if you crane your neck from that chair of yours is it not charming the double row of lamps growing closer in the distance the hazy outline of the plane tree in the square and the lights of the handsome swimming to and fro gliding and vanishing and above the sky all clear and blue and shining come let us have one of your sans nouvelles my dear dyson i am delighted to amuse you with these words mr burton prefaced the novel of the iron maid end of the decorative imagination